industrial accidents, ancient Solving poisoners, crime, poison prevention. Spills. This is Toxic History. Dr. Loren Murphy is board certified in emergency medicine and medical toxicology, and she practices clinically in both specialties. She's an assistant professor at Temple University Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and she has a particular fascination with natural toxins, forensic toxicology, and a specialty of hers, toxicologic brain death mimics. So with that, I'm very happy to hand the mic over to you, Dr. Loren Murphy. Awesome. Thank you, Adam. I'm really excited to be back and to share this interesting story with you. Uh, a small disclosure for the audience is that I'm going to be reenacting potential scenes that may have occurred in the past. These are not historically accurate in their estimations, but they are based on uh, much research and documented uh, events at the time. So today, I'm going to tell everyone here about the history of physostigmine. This story is going to span nearly two centuries. It's going to take us through a journey involving witchcraft, scientific discovery, catastrophe, and rebirth. Oh, and maybe a little disco. Adam, are you ready? I am so ready. <laughs> Let's get started. It's a beautiful day. You're playing on the muddy bank of the Cross River in Nigeria. The sun is shining. The water is cool, and your sister, who is 16 years old, has just been engaged to a man in a nearby village. She beams a radiant smile as she splashes water on your legs. And though it's the 1800s and the world is a mysterious place, one thing is quite clear. Family and community are everything. The next morning, as you wake up to start your chores, you notice something strange. Your sister, who is normally already tending the animals by this time, has still not risen from bed. In fact, Today, she does not get up at all. She's sweating. She has a fever. When she talks, it doesn't make sense. She is sick. The medicine man is here. He gives your mother herbs to make a tea. He stands at her bedside, murmurs incantations, but to no avail. You, your siblings, and your parents stay up all night taking turns tending to her. She is drinking the tea and it's still not helping. The next morning, when you come to see what has transpired overnight, you find that your sister has died in her sleep. An imposing shadow fills the doorway. It's the medicine man again. You cry out, my sister, my sister, she was healthy and young. How could she be gone? Only one thing could explain this, he says. It is the work of a witch. Your mother and father nod with solemn acknowledgement. They know that this is true. Nothing else could explain this devastating event. Your brother speaks up. He remembers that another family was trying to arrange a marriage between their daughter to your sister's fiance. They were angry when your sister was chosen. They threatened your family. It must be them, he says. One of them is a witch and cursed our sister. The medicine man nods gravely. We must bring this before the chief, he says. It is time for the essere ordeal. The concept of witchcraft to explain bewildering events was by no means novel to this region or time period. In the mid-1800s, missionaries, visitors, and scientists traveling throughout Africa found that many Native peoples believe that witchcraft was the cause of deaths, unexplainable misfortunes, as well as crime. The accused would face trial by ordeal, which would vary in its requirements from region to region, but often involved poison. And this brings us to the ordeal bean of Calabar. Calabar was the name given by the Portuguese to the southeast region of Nigeria in the 1470s. In this region, 
Through one circumstance or another, the local people discovered a mysterious bean. This bean, when ingested, had unpredictable lethal effects. And rather than attributing the effects to the bean itself, it was thought that the only explanation for this variance in outcome was that the bean was a sacred tool of the divine. When someone survived ingestion and another died, it could only be the work of a god or gods operating with higher level of knowledge and judgment. When it is one human's word against another, only a god would be able to determine who is innocent and who is guilty. Recognizing the power in this being, the people of Calabar employed it as a judicial tool, not simply as punishment, but as a divine instrument to determine guilt and trial. Much of what is known about how this bean was used comes from the documentation of missionaries in this region of Nigeria at the time. Reverend Hope Waddell arrives in 1846. He was a druggist and a merchant before becoming a missionary for a Presbyterian sect in Scotland. He has been invited to witness governmental trials by the chief of the village. And though these are public gatherings for the community, it is an honor to be invited as an outsider. Reverend Waddell comes to understand that a young girl has died suddenly, and her family accuses another of witchcraft. The chief has already confirmed that the accused party will chop nut as part of the essay ordeal, meaning to ingest toxic beans in a trial by poison. The medicine man arrives at the gathering and presents a handful of dark beans to the accused. The accused swallows the beans. There's a pause. There is silence in the crowd. In short order, the accused begins vomiting. She falls to her knees. Within minutes and a few coughs, the accused then stands and she appears recovered. There is another commotion in the crowd. The accused appears to have cleared the poison. She is innocent. The chief then addresses the family. Once someone accuses an innocent, they are now under suspect for witchcraft themselves. The accuser must now chop nut. A teenage boy steps forward. He had apparently accused the other family. He is instructed to chop nut and he takes several nuts willingly. There is another pause. Reverend Waddell watches as the boy begins sweating. His body begins to spasm. He falls to the ground and vomits repeatedly. He appears weak. He can't move his arms or legs. He begins foaming at the mouth. And in 30 minutes, he is dead. Reverend Waddell is staggered, but soon he finds that trials such as this occur on a weekly basis. He chronicles these events in his diary. The priest may offer a single bean, but up to 30 may be ingested until the accused begins vomiting. Those who vomit and survive are determined to be innocent. Those who die are determined to be guilty, as ordained by their God. Most die. Reverend Waddell wants to know more about the beans, but it seems that most of the native people cannot find the plant. It is rumored that the chiefs command that the plant be destroyed wherever it is found, so that its power cannot be used outside of governmental and religious trials and ceremonies. He asks the chief of the region, who gives Reverend Waddell a sample of the beans, which he then brings back to Scotland for investigation. Reverend Waddell's observations form the basis for the initial scientific description of the species of plant. After a full description in Europe, it is named Physostigma venenosum. Physostigma to represent the hooded appendage over the stigma of the flower and venenosum to reflect its toxic nature. It grows as a vine, similar to sweet pea, and it is found wrapped over bushes and trees along rivers and in swampy areas where the beans drop and float to the riverbank. In Scotland, it is a 21-year-old resident physician by name of Thomas Fraser who comes into possession of the beans. He begins the first documented scientific experiments, culminating in his graduation thesis in 1862. 
Through tedious work, he determines that the bean is the only part of the plant that is toxic. He performs a number of experiments on a variety of mammals, reptiles, and birds, carefully detailing the effects for each method of administration. The animals display vomiting, defecation, salivation, foaming at the mouth, just like Reverend Waddell's descriptions of the victims of the SRA ordeal. Dr. Fraser is fascinated by the compound's ability to paralyze muscles and result in rapid death. He is able to confirm that this is not due to direct muscle poisoning, but instead an impedance of the nerve conduction to the muscles. He cannot quite figure out how either of these glandular effects or nerve impedance are occurring, but his descriptions will later lay the foundation for the study of the nervous system. The parasympathetic and sympathetic branches of the nervous system, along with their chemical messengers, would not be described for another 50 years. He confirms that the ordeal bean of Calabar is an agent of death. In his experiments, smaller doses cause paralysis, pulmonary edema, and death from asphyxia. After high doses, death follows from rapid cardiac arrest. Feeling confident in his scientific efforts, he does what any good scientist of the time would do. He experiments on himself. After taking only a few drams of his physostigma extract, he carefully describes his sensations, frequent burping, a feeling like a food impaction in his esophagus, global weakness and profound fatigue follow with a bit of increased salivation and some sweating. He recovers over the course of the day and decides that caffeine with its stimulant properties would be an appropriate treatment for the sedative effects of this bean. He feels strongly that physostigma is a vital asset to medicine and that it can and should be used for the treatment of human disease for its unique effect on muscles. Ascribing the effects of the substance to sedative stimulation of the spinal cord, it only follows that it would be the most appropriate to use this as medicine in patients with excitatory spinal cord effects. That would include things such as strychnine poisoning, erysipelas, rheumatic fever, bronchitis, but most importantly, delirium tremens from alcohol withdrawal. He proceeds to carefully select patients and administer his SRA bean extract, carefully detailing the subsequent responses of the patients. <clears throat> Among his years of experimentation and discoveries, there are three that remain the most pivotal. The first is the demonstration that physostigmine is able to antagonize the effects of strychnine. The second was documenting an improvement in the mental status and delirium in patients with delirium tremens. Lastly was the, the bean's ability to produce meiosis. <clears throat> the meiotic effect of the bean is particularly striking to him. Remaining fixated on this property, he places a few drops of physostigma extract into his own eyes. Immediately, this produces copious tears followed by rapid pupillary constriction that maximizes in 30 minutes. He carefully documents how his pupils remain constricted for 12 to 14 hours and don't recover for five days. He shares this information with a 26-year-old ophthalmologist and colleague at Edinburgh named Douglas Argyle Robertson. Argyle Robertson is similarly entranced with the physiologic properties of this extract and is absolutely ecstatic to share what he believes is one of the most revolutionary discoveries, a new therapeutic agent in ophthalmology, and it has the ability to reverse the dilating effects of belladonna and atropine. The ordeal bean reaches a period of quiescence. Scientists and doctors continue to use physostigmine in the late 1800s and early 1900s, but almost exclusively in the ophthalmologic field. There is no further experimentation regarding the glandular or muscular effects, but then something exciting happens. 
In the 1930s, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system are described, as well as their chemical mediators. Physostigmine's mechanism of action is finally recognized as a stimulator in the parasympathetic nervous system. Through inhibition of acetylcholinesterase, physostigmine causes a surplus of the parasympathetic system's principal chemical messenger, acetylcholine, at the neuromuscular junction. This produces an exaggerated parasympathetic response, a cholinergic effect. When acetylcholine is in excess, it overwhelmingly stimulates the muscarinic and nicotinic receptors regulating the parasympathetic nervous system. The muscarinic effects produce the vomiting, like that witnessed in the trials of SRA that proved a defendant's innocence. This explains the quote-unquote glandular effects seen in Dr. Fraser's animals, the defecation, urination, salivation, lacrimation, the increased bronchial secretions. The muscarinic effects also explain the decreased heart rate, the bronchoconstriction. Dr. Fraser could have finally understood how a muscarinic overdose could lead to pulmonary edema that caused the asphyxia of his rabbits. He could have then seen that the large doses that paralyzed the muscles in his animals were due to the overwhelming stimulation of the nicotinic receptors, resulting in muscle fasciculations and paralysis. As physostigmine is a cholinergic agent, he would have understood how it reverses scopolamine and atropine, the anticholinergic agents. With this understanding, synthetic versions of physostigmine are created, drugs such as peridostigmine and neostigmine. The new versions are starting to be used for myasthenia gravis and still occasionally for strychnine poisoning or tetanus, but our SRA bean extract, physostigmine, continues to be used for little more besides eye drops under the name of esserine, still after the SRA ordeal. One unique area where physostigmine ophthalmic drops are used is during the treatment for psychosis in the 1950s. A psychiatrist named Dr. Gordon Forer has been inducing a comatose state in patients with psychosis to treat their symptoms of agitation. Let's imagine that Dr. Forer is taking care of a patient with schizophrenia named John. John is under the persistent delusion that the government has implanted a radio in his brain. He is afraid. He runs from room to room in the hospital, often hiding from doctors and nurses. He frequently has to be restrained or sedated. Dr. Forer elects coma therapy for John, but he has trouble deciding what agent to use. Though insulin coma has been working well for his patients and has an antidote in the form of glucose, other patients seem to respond better to large doses of atropine. The problem with atropine though is that it can sometimes result in hyperthermia or death, and he still doesn't have an antidote. So Dr. Four administers his standard dose of somewhere between 35 and 212 milligrams of atropine to John IM. But Dr. Four is no monster. In order to keep John comfortable during the treatment, he also gives John Dramamine to prevent nausea and Esserine ophthalmic ointment to combat the dilated pupils that would otherwise cause blurry vision for hours after the treatment. As John passes from delirium into coma, Dr. Four is pleased. The most difficult step is over and he watches John sleep. He hopes that after a standard course of four to six comas a week for about 20 treatments, John will finally be relieved of his paranoid delusions. While checking John's pupils during the coma, a thought occurs to Dr. Four. Perhaps the physostigmine drops that he used to combat the mitriasis could also be used as an antidote. He embarks on a clinical trial and the results are astounding. After injecting four milligrams of IV physostigmine in his human participants, it not only reverses the hyperthermia and dangerous effects of atropine, but there is complete reversal of the coma and a return to normal mental status. Not only that, but there's no apparent ill side effects. 
He publishes the data and recommends that physostigmine be used in reversal of atropine, an anticholinergic overdose. The swinging 60s continue to bring with it a cornucopia of new pharmaceuticals. The market is rife with new antidepressants, antihistamines, novel sleep aids that have atropine-like and anticholinergic properties. Among these new agents, and vital to our story, are the tricyclic antidepressants. Because in just a few years, physostigmine and the tricyclic antidepressants, or TCAs, will enter a pas de deux that results in absolute disaster. But for now, physostigmine is yet to be widely used. It is not listed in textbooks. It's not thought of as standard treatment in anticholinergic overdose or poisoning. Two publications in 1968 and 71 seek to change this. They document a series of eight patients that have marked resolution of delirium and agitation after toxicity from a variety of agents, including scopolamine, tricyclic antidepressants, and trihexylphenidyl, which is an older Parkinson's drug with a mechanism similar to atropine. The ordeal bean, in the form of physostigmine salicylate, is picking up momentum and is now recognized as an effective antidote. With this new recognition, physostigmine struts into the 1970s wearing platform shoes and ready to boogie. A burgeoning toxicologist named Dr. Rumack publishes a landmark article in 1973 and a second in 1976 that are cited for years to come. He supports the use of physostigmine as an antidote and gives examples of successful and appropriate use. He gives a helpful list of anticholinergic compounds, including the tricyclic antidepressants, against which physostigmine could be used. He is the first to suggest a dosing regimen, up to two milligrams with a single repeat dose if there's no effect. If effective, you can give doses up to four milligrams at a time every 30 minutes for reversal of delirium and anticholinergic toxicity. He warns against overdose with physostigmine, noting it can cause severe effects of the parasympathetic nervous system, such as vomiting, causing aspiration, seizures, and even cardiac arrest. As a doctor in the 1970s, you have become emboldened by all this new data. You learn how to recognize anticholinergic syndromes and toxicity. You are excited to introduce physostigmine, the cholinergic agent, as treatment. Every time it works, you publish the study. Case reports begin flooding the literature, how physostigmine worked against this anticholinergic agent or that antihistamine. But there are some surprising events. Some patients wake up and relate that there was no anticholinergic agent ingested at all. There was a case of solo agent diazepam overdose in a young infant reversed with physostigmine. The same with theoridazine, an older antipsychotic, methprolon, ethchlorvinyl, more cases of diazepam, many cases of success with the TCAs. You and your colleagues start becoming more confident in the powers of physostigmine. You start treating all patients with coma from overdose to see if physostigmine could help. By 1977 and after nearly a decade of use, there are cases of physostigmine causing remarkable improvement in delirium and coma in a variety of agents. This includes more than 600 cases of successful treatment of delirium from tricyclic overdose without ill consequence. Fortified by this data, the premier toxicology journal of the time sets forth new dosing suggestions for physostigmine, going so far as to suggest that repeated doses should be given to any comatose patient until the patient either wakes up or starts to show signs of cholinergic toxicity, such as vomiting. 
FISO is hailed as both a therapeutic and diagnostic tool. There is strong encouragement to use physostigmine for tricyclic antidepressants, including when tricyclics cause seizures. In search of a magical universal antidote for coma, physicians introduced the coma cocktail, a cure-all to be used by first responders and emergency medicine providers to treat an undifferentiated comatose patient. It involves a sequential bolus of dextrose, thiamine, naloxone, along with physostigmine, but now under the brand name Antelirium. The thought is that physostigmine is so safe and so effective that it can be given to any patient, even those without an anticholinergic overdose. The use of physostigmine is snowballing out of control. With this unrestrained use of physostigmine, there are increasing cases of symptoms that Dr. Rumack warned about. Patients vomiting after reversal, developing diarrhea and salivation, even a few having seizures. Amidst all this excitement, the failures and the toxicity from physostigmine are likely underreported, and no one has died yet. Much like disco, for physostigmine, the 1970s was a time of freedom, experimentation, and self-expression, but also like disco, a little bit cringy in retrospect. At the same time that physostigmine picks up in popularity, the tricyclics are lurking in the background, seeping into the households of the United States. There are surging numbers of accidental or intentional poisonings. Overdose produces anticholinergic delirium and coma, just like atropine, but then leads to seizures that just won't stop, and finally, cardiac dysrhythmias that can be fatal. Because it shows anticholinergic signs, it gets thrown into the category of agents that are safely treated with physostigmine. But tricyclics are complex chemicals, and scientists just can't seem to figure out what it is that causes the fatal cardiac effects. It is this tiny remaining knowledge gap that will soon prove to have lethal consequences. Years of giving physostigmine indiscriminately finally reached its culmination in 1980. The dance between TCAs and physostigmine reaches its stunning conclusion. Two patients arrive in a hospital after TCA overdose with anticholinergic signs are given physostigmine and both have cardiac arrest. One recovers and one dies the first major fatality attributed directly to treatment with physostigmine. In this two patient case series, both patients presented profoundly toxic from tricyclics. They were both having multiple seizures and showing signs of cardiac poisoning, the symptoms that would typically precede death from this overdose. Both patients were given physostigmine at a critical moment in their toxicity. One patient received four milligrams over 20 minutes. This may even be a higher rate than would be supported by the data in the 1970s. One patient had a cardiac arrest, but was luckily stabilized within 30 seconds, almost immediately after getting sodium bicarbonate as part of his code. He went on to survive with supportive measures. The second patient, the one who received the higher dose of physostigmine, took 10 minutes to achieve return of cardiac function, and again this occurred after sodium bicarb was given. Though this patient was stabilized after his cardiac arrest, he was declared brain dead in the ICU the following day. The final key to unlocking the secret to the fatal cardiac effects of tricyclics had arrived too late for these patients. TCAs, aside from altering the balance of dopamine, serotonin, and acetylcholine, has the ability to block sodium and potassium channels in the heart, causing interruptions in cardiac conduction and causing lethal cardiac dysrhythmias. These patients suffered an overdose only a few years before the effective treatment with sodium bicarbonate was recognized. In patients with TCA poisoning, any additional delay in cardiac conduction 
such as physostigmine's ability to cause bradycardia, could change an unstable patient to a coding one. For 10 years, physicians had been playing with fire without seeing the flames. Many medications are dangerous when used in the wrong patient at the wrong time. Physostigmine is no exception. Physostigmine is an agent that can cause seizures and cardiac arrest. It should never be given to patients who are actively seizing or are having signs of impending cardiac arrest. The two patients in the series were hypotensive and status epilepticus and had cardiac conduction delay when physostigmine was then bolused. While there is no doubt that giving physostigmine to these patients may have been the final nail in the coffin, so to speak, there is no way that it was the only cause of the arrests. Additionally, neither patient had been given sodium bicarb, the true treatment, before they decompensated. However, instead of recognizing the er potentially erroneous administration of physostigmine, the authors concluded that physostigmine was the direct cause of the arrests, was a dangerous medicine and should never be used ever again, a claim that had profound effects in the medical community for decades. Swinging from one extreme, the use of physostigmine indiscriminately had now swung to the other, near cessation of use for overdose. It was as if the last 10 years of successful, safe, and beneficial use of physostigmine in hundreds of patients with anticholinergic overdose, including the hundreds of other patients with tricyclic antidepressant overdose, had been completely forgotten. But Dr. Frazier, Dr. Rumack, and the other physicians throughout the last century were not in error when they supported the use of this drug. When given safely, it can prevent patients from being intubated. It can prevent traumatic injuries to patients and the care providers taking care of them during times of agitation and delirium. It can be an indispensable tool for the diagnosis of anticholinergic toxicity. Appropriate amendments were made to the prior guidelines for given physostigmine. New limits on the maximum dose, new limits on how fast it could be given, and strict instructions to never use this drug in patients with seizures or cardiac conduction delay. Absolute cessation of use if there are any signs of toxicity like vomiting or diarrhea. With stricter patient selection and time, along with these new recommendations, the medical community began to recover from their fear of causing harm through the use of physostigmine from the single case report in 1980. New studies utilizing the safer administration guidelines are now swinging the pendulum back to remember the safety and benefit of physostigmine treatment for anticholinergic overdose. There is better control of agitation during anticholinergic delirium, fewer use of other sedatives, and clarity over contributing factors to coma. Physostigmine arose in Africa as a tool of the, of the divine. It revealed the secrets behind our own nervous system, restoring sight to the blind, releasing people from titanic paralysis. It saved lives as it evolved and displayed its true power. In a blaze of glory, its true limitations were, were recognized. Through a mistake, it fell from good graces, but science has lifted it back up so that physostigmine could rise from the ashes and thrive once again. Thank you. This is asked by Dr. Michael Moss. Hi, Mike, who's um, actually in Utah right now, I believe. Why do you think some survived the Calabar bean ordeal and others did not? One of the largest factors is in natural toxins and poisons. There's a really large variability in the concentration of the poisonous material, depending on environmental factors. And that can be how much sun the plant got in that area or temperature variability, nutrient variability. So even in like Jimson weed seeds, if you open that pod and release the seeds that have atropine, hyacinine, and scopolamine, 
the amount will vary from seed to seed, even in the same pod and in the same plant. So there's not only variation in the beans, but during the trial, there's also variation in how many beans were given, um, how the beans were applied to the people differed. So sometimes people were just in the 1800s were just given beans to chew on. And I'm sure how much that poor victim decided to chew on the bean would affect how much uh, poison was released or physostigmine. Um, sometimes the beans were ground up and made into like a soup and whether it was heated or not could also change it. So there's always this huge variability, uh, not, and also in a, another kind of horrible sense, the priests at the time would often give more beans if they thought the person was more guilty. So they would come in with a prejudice and give the amount of beans maybe based on factors, not just divine <laughs> decision as well.